Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, and welcome back. Welcome back to A Freedom of Ideas. So happy to be speaking with you again after, lo, these many months and weeks and days and hours. Going to talk about a few different things today. This is not actually an episode. I know it seems like an episode because, you know, you got the little thing and you press play and now I'm talking and I did the the whole good morning, good afternoon thing and I, you know, all that, that, that stuff. But it's not actually an episode. What this is, is first a little bit of housekeeping, a little bit of talking about uh, what's going on in the sort of extended freedom of ideas cinematic universe. Also going to do a little bit of a recap from last season, since again, as noted, it has been a little while. And that's going to set us up for the actual beginning of actual episodes of actual season two, which should be happening in just a couple days. In fact, I absolutely know it will be because I've already programmed it into the distribution program. It's already set. The episode is already there waiting to go out. So how I know that's going to happen is it will take work from me to stop it going out, not work for me to make it go out. So with that assurance, I am perfectly confident that yes, in fact, there will be an episode very shortly. Should be the standard release of roundabout Thursday morning. But in any event, like I say, we're going to go through a couple things today, a little housekeeping, a little bit of a recap. I ha It has been a while since we've spoken, and I apologize for that. Uh, you know, we can blame the typical work-life balance or work-life lack of balance for for that. Of course, a little bit of actual day job stuff going on in the interim. Also had something of a eureka moment, if you will, in looking across all of these different ideas, these kinds of piles of different ideas that I was playing with, saw some connections between them that I hadn't quite figured out previously. And that's great. That's cool. I'm actually really excited. I'm a little, well, no, I'm extremely nervous, uh, extremely uncertain. You know, that's, that's kind of the, the, the nature of my psychology. But uh, more importantly, very excited to, to share this with you folks, but it did require quite a bit of reworking once this little thing kind of clicked. I had a lot of stuff ready to go and then decided I needed to do a lot of revision and editing before I felt comfortable putting it out. And I still don't feel terribly comfortable, but yeah, like I say, that's the nature of the beast. That that's that's not a big deal. I do feel bad, however, and I'm not. If you look at the sort of different realms of philosophy, one of the areas that's that's a, never appealed to me as much as the, the others is moral and ethical philosophy. Not to say that morality and ethics do not appeal to me. I tend to like those things very much, particularly when practiced by human beings and the systems that we create and that surround us. But the, the actual philosophy, like how do you define good and all, all that kind of stuff, of course, it, it really comes right up next to a lot of the things that we talk to. And yet it's the one of the areas of philosophy that just doesn't quite sparkle for me the way some of the other ones do, the way certainly, as we saw in the last season, philosophy of mind very much sparkles for me. However, I, I, I raise this because I, I did sort of encounter a moral conundrum in all of these things. Um, rather, I, I believe I, I might have uh, embodied a moral failing because as the last season was ending or just after the last season ended, someone on Twitter asked me when they could expect new shows. And, and I told them like November, December, which, you know. It's, it's later than that now. And so not only did I say this to, to one person, but then another person came and liked the tweet that I said that in, which I, I feel like from a moral, you know, sort of ethical philosophical standpoint, that very much elevates the tweet into, uh, you know, my word is my bond territory. So as such, with that in mind, I have obviously committed a great moral failing here. And yet, you know, here we are, this, this apparently, you know, as I, of course, listen to a lot of podcasts, I, I think the whole planning to have a podcast episode or series out at a certain time, and then missing that deadline by, by months, sometimes years, I, I think that kind of makes me, you know, a little bit more part of the family. So that much, at least that is exciting. But let's begin. And let's talk a little bit about housekeeping here. Now, for those of you who are avid podcast listeners, I'm pretty sure you know what this term housekeeping is, is typically code for. 
And and you're right, you're right. But it's it, it is that you know it's absolutely that. But it's not just that. First of all, very excited to announce that you can check out a freedomofideas.com. You can find episode lists on our new website. Uh, you can find um, reading lists by season, uh, and eventually we're going to have some, some links to various other endeavors that are that are part of the the Corey DiBiase world, uh, the various things that keep me busy in life and through the course of any given day. So if you want to introduce someone to the show, uh, not only is, uh, you know, we're pretty proud of the website, we also have, of course, have a new logo, a new look, as probably a lot of you are seeing. We're very excited about that. But also on the site, we're, we have a, a short kind of teaser clip. It's, it's actually based on that Prolegomena episode, our very first episode from back in the day, but just enough to kind of introduce the show, give someone a taste of it, a taste of my voice and a taste of the way my mind works and wanders and what have you. If you were of a mind to introduce the show to someone else, this would be a very convenient way for you to do that. So that, of course, is very exciting. As always, you can and you should you should, you ought to, talk about moral philosophy, you ought to contact me at words at afreedomofideas.com. So that's our email address. You can also do the whole Twitter thing. Uh, that is at afreedomofideas. So that, that's there. You will also find, if you look at our website, that there we now have a small collection of merch, of, of merchandise, but you say merch because it's so much cooler. So we have this collection of merch, which I hope, that fans of the show, and particularly fans of the, the first season, because we're really trying to root uh, the, some of the merchandise in, in the things that we talk about. Clever, silly little references, but uh, hopefully clever, uh, but certainly silly little references to various things that we talk about on the show. So for folks who are familiar with the first season, um, hopefully some enjoyable stuff there. And we'll, of course, be adding to that as we go through this season and the seasons to come. And finally, and here's another thing that you can find through the site as well, you can support the show on Patreon. Just go, you can go directly to Patreon and search for a Freedom of Ideas. You can also find the link directly through our website. Not to dwell on this because, of course, I, it just it is against every instinct of my being to, to be talking about something like this, but so be it. Uh, subscriptions are going are gonna to work on a purely per show basis. So if I go off on a, another non-mobile wandering of the mind, as I did to uh, to prep for this uh, this series, of course there won't be any charges cropping up when I'm not actually giving you anything in exchange for it. You can also do one-time shots and all that kind of good stuff. Also, and, and this isn't great, but but it is it is what it is. I'm not really doing any bonuses. So I say subscription, but you're not going to get anything for subscribing other than, of course, here again, moral philosophy. It's in the air. Other than the 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 the, the positive sensation of having committed what I, I hope we can all agree is a morally positive act, right? And contributing to the show. If you do contribute, that's fantastic. It is so appreciated. It's going to help me keep in good standing at the local bookstore and all that kind of good stuff. If not, you're going to have the exact same access to any of the content that we come up with here, any of the content on the website, anything that goes out via the podcast channel. It's all going to be accessible to everyone in the same way. Frankly, given the time commitment that all of this takes, not a complaint. I, obviously, it's, it's something I very much enjoy. But it is extremely time intensive. I, I really don't know how to add extras on top of what we already do. And I don't want to compromise the product that anyone experiences by saying that, well, you know, only some of you are going to get the good episodes. Everybody else, you know, just going to have the, the, the silly stuff where I don't actually think that I'm speaking the truth. And you, you have to, to pay extra to get the truth. We're, we're, we're not going to do that. That did not sound like a good idea to me. I, you know, I, I have, of course, been thinking about, you know, if there's some way to do like uh, some kind of deal whereby you would give X amount and in exchange for that, 
we tell you the meaning of life, but you know, I back and forth, back and forth planning. I mean, you know how this goes. You put, I, I, you sort of throw ideas up against the wall. You see what works, you see what doesn't. And this was just kind of an ongoing debate. I think what we're going to do is kind of hold on to that meaning of life thing as kind of a, a longer term IP investment opportunity. But um, again, you know, uh, not quite sure where we're going with that. Certainly keep you posted. Check the website. I am looking at some options for merchandise type things, little incentives like that, that we could send around in exchange for, for subscriptions. Uh, haven't quite arrived at a solution yet. Didn't want to put this off while I'm waiting to figure that out as I'm sort of learning to navigate all these different pieces, but rest assured, whatever little prize we come up with that, you know, a reward for this level of subscription, that level of subscription or whatever else, Anyone who subscribes now will certainly have access to all that. We will make sure that everyone gets that. We will retroact all that good stuff so that it's not as though there's any uh, incentive to wait and find out what the prize will be. Of course, it's also not much of an incentive to not wait because you don't know what the prize will be. But our, our goal here is that we kind of have created at least a neutral incentivization. Uh, uh, we want to leave you really, really calmly, totally stoked, I guess is what, what, we're, what we're trying to say. In any event, and, and I should say, to be clear, and, and this, as opposed to a lot of the rest of this, this is actually serious. I know very well that this remains a difficult time, financially speaking, well, in, in many different ways, but certainly financially speaking for many folks. Obviously, and I hope this is obvious, but if it isn't, here, we're, we're just going to say it, so hopefully it becomes obvious at that point. Please don't even think about contributing to the show if it's going to have a, a tangible effect on your personal bottom line. If it's something you wouldn't notice doing, great, awesome, very much appreciated. My, my, my most humble and, and uh, fulsome thanks for that. If it is going to affect you, if it's going to be a problem, please don't even think twice. Keep listening to the show. Send me your thoughts. Send me your ideas. Send me your complaints. Whatever. Keep engaging with the show. That, to me, is far, far more important. And I certainly don't want anyone feeling like you're not more than welcome here on the basis of this silly uh, subscription stuff here. So that does lead me to, however, just a little more housekeeping, and then uh, then the housekeeping is over, and away we will go. But uh, like a typical writer, I, I do enjoy doing lots and lots and lots of housekeeping before actually getting down to the business of writing that, or in this case, relating some of the things I've written and, and thought about. So as we're digging into the next series, if you enjoy it, or if you've enjoyed what you've heard so far, one thing I would ask of, of anyone, if you can, if you, if you know someone, please tell a friend or, you know, tell an enemy, if you prefer. Tell someone about whom you are as yet undecided. Totally fine. Because, uh, I mean, really, if we're being honest here, this little adventure that we're all on together, this freedom of ideas, uh, philosophy, imaginary words, and Big Lebowski joke hour, well, I, I think we're all good enough friends here that, that we can be honest uh, with one another. Um, we can maybe admit together that that this what we're doing here, this maybe isn't how the vast majority of people, we might even say, quote unquote, normal people, and we'll have more to say about that later, but I am opposed to, to that adjective, both ethically and ontologically. But in any event, this is not how most people spend their time these days. We are niche, right? And, and that's perfectly fine. We are a rarefied cabal. And, and you know, think of it this way. If everyone else were as cool as us, then we, by definition, would stop being as cool as we are. I mean, that right there, that's science. I can't do anything to change that. And, and frankly, I wouldn't even try. My point is that you, as someone who enjoys this strange footnote to the annals of pop culture, you are the person most likely to know that one other person who would also enjoy uh, how we spend our time together. Or perhaps you are that other person, in which case, same basic equation applies. You just keep that ball rolling, right? 
Anyways, let's get down to cases. Let's talk a bit about our promised recap of the last season. If you were not able to listen to the last series, or even if you were, but could, as I say, after all this time and presumably having thought about a number of other things in the interim, if you could use a refresher, I'm going to summarize our conclusions briefly, you know, more or less, as, as, as is our want, and, and we'll emphasize the pieces of the first season that I think are most important to hold on to and carry forward as we start off as start diving into the second season. Now, as you'll recall, the question we were contending with last season was about individual free will. Are human beings capable of making genuinely free choices over and above the extent to which our choices are predetermined by our upbringing or our genetics or by circumstances, or maybe, you know, just possibly by a hyper-competent hyper uh, sort of demon physicist, which, you know, at least in philosophy, really is actually a thing. But let's not get distracted. Amidst all of that, is it possible for us to make truly free choices that reflect who we are, but are not purely dictated by who we are? And, and again, to be clear, this is not about political or social freedom. That's what the upcoming season is about very much. But this first season was not about that. This isn't about someone being locked in a, in a dungeon. This is about whether or not any person at any point can make a free choice. And if so, how? And the answer, in its briefest form, is yes. Yes, we can make real choices, and we are able to make real choices, to have free will, and the reason I say that with such confidence is, well, you know, is because I said so. Which is, you know, maybe, maybe that's underselling the conclusions we came to. So let's, let's go through this a bit. Let's start by assuming that the very first humans to ever use language were not spending too much of their time worrying about whether or not their choices to eat shellfish and to run away from tigers were genuinely free choices, or if those choices were simply dictated by their basic impulses for survival or by some other deterministic factor. We can assume that the first, very first people to use language, this is not what they were using language for, right? Further, we can assume, and again, this is all a speculative history, but I don't think uh, it's it's too going too far out on a limb. So further, we can assume that to even have the linguistic equipment necessary to have the vocabulary and the complexity of, of of ideas and different words relating to one another, to have that linguistic equipment to discuss freedom as a concept, there would simply have to be generations upon generations of linguistic development and burgeoning complexity. If we have a very basic vocabulary that's just referring to stuff in the world that we need to survive or that we need to avoid to survive, well, that's not the same as, as really diving into the, the ontological nature of freedom in the way that someone like Kant or Hegel or, or even Aristotle or Plato or Thales or any of the other folks that we would talk about. That's not the kind of work that they're going to do with that very limited, presumably very limited linguistic tools. So that development of language over hundreds of generations, we assume, and again, I, 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 as I always say, this is a purely speculative, uh, speculative history that we're doing here. But we assume, so when we imagine what it takes to go from the earliest use of language, which again, we assume most often directly references things in the world, what does it take to get there, to get from there rather, to talking about the idea of free will in the abstract. Start with the way we describe ourselves, the way we describe ourselves and one another, or perhaps more precisely, the way we describe our choices, our intentions, instances where we help or where we do harm, instances where we describe ourselves accurately or where we describe ourselves inaccurately, instances where we keep our word and instances where we don't, and instances where having failed to keep our word was our fault or was not our fault. 
all these behaviors and all the descriptions of these behaviors layered generation upon generation upon generation. Generations in which we first continue to expand the range of types of behaviors that we can actually enact, and second, that we therefore have to expand the descriptions of those behaviors that we create, and third, generations in which we are therefore equipped to act in even more different ways, have even more different kinds of actions and classifications of intentions, because the range of possibilities of who we are and what we do has been expanded because the trove of descriptions that we use to describe it has also been expanding. So we see this feedback loop occurring wherein we keep uh, acting in different ways, we keep observing one another acting in different ways, we keep ascribing descriptions to those different actions, and then once we all understand those descriptions, well, that gives us a foundation to start acting and describing ourselves in yet different ways, and on and on and on and on it goes, generation upon generation, millennium upon millennium. Which leads us to a small thought experiment. And again, we have to emphasize how early in the process of linguistic development I'm placing us when we talk about these things. Let's, let's consider this question. What event necessitated the use of the word liar for the very first time? If we could get inside the head of that, that very first liar, the first person who was called a liar, were they malicious? Did they lie with knowledge of forethought? Or did intending to lie, did meaning to lie, did planning to lie, did, did that have to wait until after we knew that lying was even an option in the first place, uh, an option that we could choose from in deciding what to do next in our lives? Because, of course, we consider this, there had to be a time in human development before there was such a thing as a liar. Not to say that no, that no one lied. Everyone said, oh, you know what, we're just going to, we're, with the truth means so much to us that we will, we will, we've decided we will never lie. That's not it, right? We're talking about a time in our linguistic development where the word liar, the idea of liar, and thus presumably the very specific activity of lying, none of those things yet existed in the, in the way that they very much do now. Essentially, as we learned from Daniel Dennett, who whose work uh, was the foundation and the from the foundation, the spire, and the the middle mass of of most of what we accomplished in the in the first series. And so, as we learned from Daniel Dennett, it's the history of these quote unquote reverberant phenomena, our descriptions of ourselves that go out into the world and then are sent back to us with revisions based on the perspectives of other people. Slowly, over the course of centuries, this web of words and distinctions that we use to describe ourselves and that we use to describe one another grows more and more and more intricate. And we grow more and more and more intricate as a consequence, because these descriptions are doing as much to shape our minds as they are to describe what already exists, right? So carry this same pattern, the same cyclical pattern forward for, you know, however many millennia, and then start mixing in things like writing and religion and philosophy and poetry and folklore and TV shows and podcasts and social media and whatever else. And I believe that with all that piled layer upon layer upon layer, like, like, the, like the literal sands of time building up over, over the centuries, I believe in all of that, you have all of the tools that you need to slowly, and again, over a frightfully long period of time, you have all of the tools you need to create minds with exactly the kind of capacity for free choosing that ours have. Which is to say, a capacity that is not at all absolute, not at all absolute, not free choosing that is influenced by nothing whatsoever, but, but some sort of vague notion of creating a wholly original choice that is, that is not drawn from any other aspect of our personal history or circumstances. Not absolute in that sense, 
but rather a kind of choosing that is influenced by countless different factors about ourselves and the world we live in. A kind of choosing whose boundaries are perhaps determined by these factors, but which is still very much free, and free, most importantly, free in the way that we need it to be, to be able to make the kind of choices that we actually need to make to define ourselves and to reflect who we are in the world. But wait, you may well be saying, but wait. We set out to describe what we, I think it's fair to call, this nearly sacred feature of the human mind. And here I come, here Corey comes with his podcast, back to tell you that, that talking about shellfish and, you know, thousands of years of linguistic development and, and something about poetry, and, and that has something to do with social media, and, and, and all that, just, just accept it. All that is why there's free will. So just, just don't worry about it. Just accept that tigers, shellfish, Twitter, and boom, free will. We always want, and this is the point of my bringing this up, that, that this, this explanation is meant to feel like a disappointment to you. It should feel like a disappointment to you by the nature of the exact mechanism that we're talking about. Because we always want more romance, more drama, more magic in the descriptions and the explanations that we create for these kinds of features of mind particularly the, the big dollar items, one that, right, the freedom and selfhood and consciousness and all that great stuff. And as we put it in the last series, we want explanations that are nearly as magical as the experience of having these faculties in the first place. We want explanations for these phenomena we need to ensure that those explanations, that, that they reach the heights of the phenomena themselves, right? That the explanation should be worthy of these phenomena that they are explaining. So when we talk about free will, we're talking about a kind of capacity that is absolutely unique to the human species. No other creature in the natural world has managed to create a capacity for free choosing that is as self-directed and as intricate as ours. Now, there may be other creatures with what we would define as free will. And to the best of our knowledge, to the best of human knowledge, there are no other creatures who have written libraries worth of philosophy, fiction, and poetry to reflect those particular capacities of mind, right? So how then can we turn the entire question into one of into one of people throughout history talking and, and sort of writing this capacity into existence, taking relative nothing and turning it into this particular magical something. It can't possibly suffice to say that just because we describe ourselves as being free, that we therefore simply are free, right? It can't just be because, literally, it can't just be because, well, we said so. And we've been saying so in a variety of different ways for millennia, and therefore, there it is. Now, again, this particular class of objection that we talked about in the last series at much, much greater length. Uh, in, in fact, I would say that the majority of the series was looking at this kind of objection and some of the false assumptions, I believe the false assumptions, that underlie it. In essence, this objection is part and parcel of the way these aspects of mind came into being over these years and centuries and millennia of human thought and writing. Because, remember, in our view, our present concept of free will did not emerge in a highly rational way. Now, have we been trying to consider it in a highly rational way? Yes. But when we're talking about this historical development, it's not as though, uh, you know, generation upon generation upon generation, we've been very carefully, studiously saying, well, what dad said about free will was A, B, and C, but that contradicts this new notion I have of D, E, and F. So we have to revise C and may re maybe replace B with F. No, no, no. It wasn't anything like that. It wasn't anything that rational as it's been building up year upon year, century upon century, generation upon generation. Rather, for the millennia in which human beings have been using language, we've just been 
adding to the sheer volume and of talk and writing about these phenomena, again, not in some highly studious way, like laying bricks in a wall. What we have instead are almost randomized piles of ideas and descriptions and philosophical theories and poems and stuff we saw in movies and stories from our history and something we saw on Twitter and a political campaign and an essay we read from John Stuart Mill. All of it just piled up in no particular order and with very little systematization. And then think, kind of go one layer deeper and think that, okay, probably the poem that I read, since it came 50 years after the essay from John Stuart Mill that I read, probably the poem was maybe influenced by John Stuart Mill, or, or maybe it was designed to reject John Stuart Mill, or maybe it was influenced by someone else entirely, or maybe this whole new kind of influence came in when we started thinking about Buddhism and, and how that influences all these other ideas. So again, trying to pick together the, the almost generation upon generation of mimetic development, we can't possibly trace the way all of that has interrelated with itself, uh, you know, year upon year, millennia upon millennia over the course of our history. It's just too complex. It's too confused. It's too convoluted. So it's all just kind of there, all waiting to influence us in ways that we can never quite track, right? And I mean, heck, even think about it, right? Just the fact that I use the phrase brick in a wall. Well, if you're any kind of fan of good old rock and roll music, well, that, that simple phrase that in no way referenced back to the song, that probably set your mind off in a direction that you then saw kind of related back to freedom in a very important way, but not, certainly not in some perfectly analytical, rational, ordered, systemized kind of way, right? And this is how these capacities are created in us. Chaotically, over such long periods of time that it's impossible to even imagine how all of these various pieces of meaning and different ideas and thoughts and emotions, how they all come together and interrelate because the pile of ideas is so large, so intricate, so confusing, often so contradictory, uh, you know, if we really go ahead and examine it, the pile of meaning is so large that it really cannot make anything like perfect sense to us. Rather, because there's so much meaning and emotion and inspiration and contradiction woven into the history of how we consider these ideas, we ultimately want any explanation of free will to have that same weight of emotion and meaning and, and difficulty and contradiction and everything else that's actually there in this huge, hyper-complex, mostly tacit, and certainly not rigorously examined web, or if you prefer, mesh or tangle of ideas that have come down to us that I would argue actually constitute our capacity for free will. It's that whole tangled mess that makes free will, right? Um, in all of its considerable, beautiful, emotional richness. Now, you could argue, and it would be very much in keeping with this entire class of objections that we keep coming back to, that, that somehow this explanation does not really live up to what we want an explanation of, of free will to be. So you could say that this explanation of an almost contingent development of just piling meaning on meaning on meaning on meaning, generation on generation. You could say that, well, in essence, Corey, you're cheapening the real fundamental core idea of freedom. That you've made those ideas matter less precisely because, you know, I'm not offering an explanation that is by any means as poetic and powerful as the actual sensation of being free and making free choices. The, again, the experience of having free will that is, that is built upon the foundation of all these generations and millennia of meaning and ideas, and also fueled by the, the sensation and the emotion and the visceral nature of them. But I tend to take the opposite view. Of course, I, I certainly hope that in thinking this way about free will, I am by no means cheapening the idea. In fact, I... I think it's kind of amazing that we've accomplished this. And I think it's amazing how we've accomplished it. 
And I, I don't think that this kind of an explanation in any way threatens the idea or the sanctity of free will. None of this, none of this at all is to say that free will is not real. We've made it very, very real indeed through this entire process. Maybe free will is not hardwired. Maybe it's not sort of there in our, in our brains like the amygdala or something like that. But I tend to think that comparatively few of the features of our, of our minds that we really pride ourselves on uh, as human beings, I don't think most of those are hardwired in the sense of being absolute and inviolate and inevitable features of mind. So I use the, the, the analogy of language in the series quite frequently. Now, and I should say, as we're talking about hard, the hardwired nature of our, of our brain, evidence suggests that our brains are very well suited to hosting a language. And to use an analogy that is quite fraught, but still, it's one that I think comes pretty easily to us at this, at this moment in our history. It's as though our, the hardware of our brains is designed to host exactly that kind of software, exactly the kind of software that language is. So they just fit together perfectly. What this means is that we learn language, languages very naturally and that we're very good at building language into everything we do. And even, it even means that language becomes a foundation on which other features of mind can and will be built. But just saying that we have a hardwired proclivity for language doesn't somehow create a rich description of any particular language or keep there from being a wide variety of ways of creating and using language. And, and as we said, it also doesn't mean that we're so hardwired for language that, that language somehow develops spontaneously in us with no outside intervention. Free will, just like language, Free will is something that we must learn, that we must create for ourselves based on what we have learned. And I think that just makes it all the more exceptional. So again, take the analogy of, and this is, this is you know, this seems like a very cruel analogy and really emphasize that we are talking purely in the abstract here. If we isolate a human child from any experience of language, any experience whatsoever, any kind of linguistic communication, even, even by gesture, we can't, of course, believe that that child will develop language spontaneously. It must be based on experience. I believe the same to be true of free will, but again, I certainly do not say that while thinking that that somehow makes it less meaningful, right? In fact, further, to me, it reveals a kind of responsibility that I believe we have as creatures with this kind of capacity built the way it has been built. If we created freedom in the way that we speak and think and write about freedom, well, then that means that we will either continue to do so in ways that will enrich the idea of freedom or that we won't. We'll turn the idea into, and this is the negative possibility here, we could turn the idea into something simple and reactive and limiting. This, of course, is the most difficult and dangerous consequence of saying that an idea like freedom is not absolute, but rather contingent on us and how we use the idea in our, in our lives and in our societies and, our, and in our governments and in our languages generally. We can change freedom. We can pervert it. We can destroy it. Or we can make it much better. We can build the idea into something greater than it has been in the past and continue to enrich it generation after generation so that a hundred or five hundred or a thousand years from now, it will seem even more absurd that this beautiful capacity of mind was somehow created almost by happenstance over the course of generations and millennia. But let's take that as a given for now, aside from saying that, of course, if our history of thinking and talking about freedom has not helped explain it, but in fact, uh, not, in, instead of just explaining it, has in fact truly created it, well, that actually puts a lot more pressure on the next step in our exploration. What I'm thinking of as, as uh, are this upcoming season, which I'm calling our Foundations series. 
in this series that, again, that we're going to be kicking off later this week. It is ready to go. Back to our usual Thursday schedule. We're going to be looking at European philosophy of freedom from some of the big names that we've mostly probably heard of. John Stuart Mill, John Locke, Hobbes, Rousseau, Hegel, probably a few others in there. But we, what we need to remember here, when we're thinking about these issues in the second season, in light of what we learned in the first, is a basic shift in how we look at the work that these folks are doing. So if we were able to ask Mill, or certainly John Locke, if we, if we were to, able to ask them, what is it that you're doing? What are you trying to accomplish with your work? And, and by the way, I, I need to say I'm completely speculating here, but not without, uh, you know, without some foundation and obviously some knowledge of the way these folks thought. If we ask them to describe what kind of activity they were engaged with, aside from philosophizing and writing, of course, I think that these folks would tell you that they were basically undergoing a process of discovery, a process that's somehow like exploration. They would say that as they were trying, as they were trying to define freedom, that there were fixed facts about freedom that exist out there in the world that they were trying to discover those facts and to understand pre-existing concepts as well as they could. So they were doing something a lot more similar to what an explorer would be doing by going out into the world and trying to discover a, a new island or a new continent that no one had been, been to before. Their idea was that these ideas of freedom and other aspects of mind were fixed, were absolute, and were out there and, you know, I know I kind of keep emphasizing that this difference in way of thinking, but of course it's very important. These were religious philosophers. These were philosophers driven by a Christian faith. Therefore, they believed that uh, God not only created the world, but God created these ideas. God created the idea of freedom. Thus, it was a thing. Thus, if we set out to define what freedom is, we are looking to discover something that exists. Whereas, of course, in everything that I'm talking about here, I am suggesting that this is an idea that we have very much created, almost by happenstance, through the course of our history of thinking and speaking about it, including, by the way, through our history of, of engaging in religions that give us further and richer perspectives on these kinds of ideas. So again, in these folks' worldview, God created the idea of freedom in the first place, so, as a consequence, the work of a philosopher becomes the activity of discovering what is there, set, fixed, already true in the world, which, again, we would put in contrast with our contention from the last series that this, again, is very much a contingent idea that has been developed through centuries of human thought and activity and speech and, and, and on and on and on and on. And as I referenced before, one of the most basic fundamental distinctions between these two views of this activity, i.e., you know, what we would call John Locke's view that he is trying to go out and discover an idea that exists already versus the view that I cleave to, which is that we have created this idea and thus we're sort of trying to discover what we've already created, but we're already by doing that creating it even more, adding to what has been created by this ongoing process of adding meaning and thought and, and, and et cetera, and et cetera, and et cetera, to these concepts of, of freedom and other aspects of, my, of mind. One of the most important distinctions between those two ways of thinking is that, in my view, it is well within our power to basically, fundamentally alter the nature of these ideas to alter what they mean to us, to alter how they act in the world and for us. If, for example, we were to say that the nature of freedom is indelibly linked to popsicles, well, if one of us says that once, you know, as, as one of us, of course, just did, well, you know, that, that's not a big deal, right? Uh, given the sheer volume of words and ideas and ink and actions and emotions and stories that have historically collected around our notion of freedom, 
Well, you know, just one silly errant thought for me, it's, it's not going to sway the overall gravity of this gargantuan collection of, of ideas and understanding. However, if thousands or tens of thousands or millions of us begin to push the idea and if we do so aggressively, if we build up a system of thought around the notion of freedom qua popsicle, well, that actually may eventually have a very real effect on the fundamental notion that is freedom. Slowly, the idea of freedom as a popsicle, that begins to resonate because not only did I say it, you said it, then another person said it. And eventually after a month or so, I hear someone else say it to me. And I think, oh, geez, this is, this is really building. Now this idea, this, this really means something because I've not only said it, I've heard it said to me, even if we don't agree with it, we admit, you know, if we start to, if we talk about this idea enough, simply by talking about it, we admit the notion as one of a number of possible relevant defining ideas related to freedom. It means that freedom consists of strand upon strand of upon strand of ideas woven together, and now suddenly popsicle is one of those strands. It's one of those ideas, and it's starting to pull on all of the other all the other ideas. It becomes one of these memes in this gargantuan federation of memes that is our experience of the notion of freedom. Now, of course this is silly. Of course this is silly. And please, please do not build any kind of movement around the idea that freedom is somehow equivalent to or defined by a popsicle. If we're going to get together and start a cult, you know, if that's, if that's what, what this whole little adventure is going to turn into, you know, uh, okay, fine. Not a big fan of that. Generally don't like cults either, but at least, at least if that's the direction we're going to go with this, let's at least not have the ideas just be, be silly, goofy, right? Let's, let's have a little dignity in our cult. Could we maybe please? But you know, anyway, setting that aside for the moment. If you're looking for what are sadly far more realistic examples of how this process of creating these ideas can in fact fail us, or rather how we can fail that process, well, take the idea of freedom as a zero-sum game. Meaning, begin to think about freedom as if there's a limited supply of it, as if it's like wheat in a, in a, in a grain elevator you start thinking that way, the fact that I get to be more free means that someone else then has to be less free. And that everyone's freedom is, is somehow a threat to everyone else's freedom. It's certainly a threat to my freedom or to the freedom of my group. If you choose, you can push that idea so far as to arrive at the conclusion that our freedom the freedom of our group, the freedom of our tribe, the freedom of our, you know, whatever aspect of personal identity, the freedom of our fellow citizens, that that freedom depends on the elimination of the freedom of another group, or maybe just the elimination of the group itself. We could come to the conclusion, what I'm saying in a roundabout way, we could come to the conclusion that somehow our freedom depends upon genocide. We could come to the conclusion that somehow our freedom depends upon slavery. It's happened before. It's happened many, many times before. I would almost go so far as to say that it's more of a norm than it is an aberration. And it certainly, it certainly could happen again. So, with those as our, you know, not very humorous stakes, as we look forward and we begin to work through the thinking of folks like Mill and Locke and all the rest of them that I referenced, we need to keep in mind exactly what it was they were up to, even if they themselves would not have either recognized it or agreed to this description that I'm about to, to give you. We need to remember that everything they wrote, everything they thought, the countless ways that that thinking and writing influenced the overall sum of all of our thinking and all of our writing and all of our imagining and all of our mythologizing about freedom. 
that all of that was an activity of creating these ideas. It was not an act of discovery. It was an act of creation. So every one of these ideas matters because every one of these ideas is somehow a strand in the fabric of the idea as it has come down to us. Of course, the way, uh, you know, for example, John Stuart Mill's thoughts now influence us, it's not so simple as to as us just walking around and, and quoting John Stuart Mill every time someone asks us about freedom. But it is still absolutely essential as we do this work that we recall that whatever we think about when we uh, are hearing from these folks, whether we, we, we love what we're hearing, whether we hate it, whether we think it just completely misses the point, whatever our response to their work, all of those thoughts are already out there they're already part of the fabric of our, of our current presumptions and our current definitions. Again, whatever we think of those ideas, even the ones that I believe we will come to feel horrified by, all of them are already there. All of them are already woven into the complex strands of the intellectual DNA, the, the intellectual memes, if you will, that we bring to bear on these ideas. So, with that, thank you again for tuning in today. Thank you again for sticking with me over my hiatus. And please do, as I said before, words at afreedomofideas.com, at afreedomofideas on Twitter. Let me know what you think. Let me know what your questions are. I, I can't tell you how helpful it is to get some feedback as I, as I continue to sort of strike this balance between providing enough detail and becoming ponderous and tedious and uh, getting us all lost in the weeds of, of some minor esoteric argument that, that obsesses philosophers but maybe doesn't make quite so much sense to the rest of us. So again, you can get at me on Twitter at a freedom of ideas. You can get at me on email at words at a freedom of ideas.com. And until then, and until I talk to you again on Thursday, on Thursday, it's already right in that system there. It's already ready to go. I don't have the energy to stop it. So it is going to happen. Until then, thank you very much as always. I will speak with you again quite soon, and I am looking forward to it. <laughs>